Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second of Bloomberg's podcast, where we're talking about our Belt and Road series, now showing on Bloomberg Television. And with me is Haslinda Amman, who hosts episode two. Has, uh, look, I watched this uh, episode. You have been everywhere. Tell us where well, you've been. I, I wouldn't say everywhere, but <laughs> yes, Southeast Asia, uh, South Asia, Central Asia. So, yeah. Quite interesting. Well, I it's mean, been look, quite a ride. The, 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 the show starts in Mumbai, and, and I thought it was actually really very interesting about, you know, how India is sort of resisting the Chinese Belt and Road innovations or initiatives. So tell us just a little bit about what, what's happening with, um, in, with India and how India views this. I think India is pretty uncomfortable, pretty apprehensive. China's putting a lot of money into infrastructure in India's immediate neighbors. We're talking about the likes of Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Maldives. And as you know, David, some of these borders are pretty contentious and we've seen political tensions between India and Pakistan, for example. That's been going on for years. So India feels pretty uncomfortable. China's helping to develop these countries, which it could have trouble with, you know, down the road. And there's also the risk of debt. If these countries go into debt, then India could be in trouble as well. Right, right, right. But, I, you know, some of the shots that we see in the uh, program are just stunning. But I, I, there's one where you're in, um, in the Mumbai railway station. And I just wondered to myself, when I saw all these crowds surging around you, you know, what was it like actually doing that stand-up? Oh, my God, it was crazy. It was actually very difficult. It was rush hour. It was so crowded, you could hardly see me. Yeah. I was I was really lost in the sea of uh, morning commuters. We actually had to wait for a time when it eased a little so I could be in shot, you know, if you know what I mean. Uh, even if it's just for, for a moment, it was difficult because security was also tight. So we had to find that perfect moment where you could see me and security wasn't really looking at us. So we got creative and it was one take. We didn't have any oh, other really? options. Yes, it was one take. Wow, okay. Well, you probably had to do it in one take. I could certainly see you because you were wearing one of your trademark eye-popping colored dresses. <laughs> and that's, just, that's a funny one because, you know, I thought I was going to pop. But, you know, if you know Indian, Indians, they wear a lot of colors yeah. as well. <laughs> so I didn't really pop that much, but popped enough to be seen on cam. But tell me, look, you also came out with some extraordinary statistics about India's rail travel and India's, you know, rail network. Just give us a little taste of, of, of what we got there. You know what? It's it's pretty mind-blowing, right? If you take a look at the numbers, I mean, India's Railway, one of the largest railway networks in the world. I didn't know that until I, I did this series. If you put the tracks back to back, then they will circle the globe one and a half times. And if that is not enough, 8 billion passengers a year, that's the official number. The unofficial could be even more. You're not even so, the ones riding on the roof, right? <laughs> yes, the roof everywhere. I mean, it, you know, it's amazing how many people they can pack in that, in, in that, in, in, in each, what is that, cubicle or each, uh, box, you know. But one interesting thing also that came out of there was that, that actually there is Chinese investment going into infrastructure in India. You mentioned that the AIIB is investing in, uh, in, the, in, the, in the metro in Mumbai. The AIIB being, of course, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, which mm-hmm. was started up by China a couple of years ago. Well, yeah. In fact, India is one of the founding members. I think they have 21 founding members. And AIB has actually committed a lot of money, I think in excess of, you know, $3 billion uh, to invest in uh, Indian infrastructure projects. And I think part of the reason for that is that 
India's infrastructure needs are so great. I mean, India can't foot the bill itself, so it needs a lot of help. So it gets AIIB, it gets, you know, funding from the Asian Development Bank, the World Bank. So it gets a lot of help. And AIIB being the new kid on the block in terms of, you know, financing, being able to finance these projects, it, it's it's come to India's rescue in a way. There was a, also an interesting point made by one of the guests who you interviewed um, who, who drew the, the distinction between investing for commercial reasons, uh, you know, investing in these infrastructure projects for commercial reasons and strategic reasons. Mm. Can you just mm. tease that out a bit? What was that about? Well, I guess, you know, like if you take a look at the Belt and Road Initiative, the, there are some people who say that China's in it because of strategic reasons. It wants to be in some of these countries because it wants to be there for political and strategic reasons. Right. Um, so... People are pretty cautious. It's not just about economics. It's not just about helping a country get to where it wants to be, get to the growth it wants to be at, but also for China's own reasons. I think that that is the distinction they make. I think a lot of people also talk about the case of Djibouti, where uh, China's invested a lot of money and infrastructure, but it also has its first military base there. Well, you're right. And, you know, in a way... You know, if not China, then who? If you talk about Djibouti, would the U.S. want to invest in infrastructure there? You know, so as much as you want to be suspicious of China, you also have to think, who else if not China? Well, Kazakhstan. <laughs> oh, no, no, not, not Kazakhstan, but doing the, uh, doing the investment. But who else in terms of a completely different story in terms of whether they're going to welcome, uh, you know, in terms of welcoming China's investment or not? And I have to say, those opening shots of Astana are absolutely extraordinary. I was just amazed by how modern this city is. What, what was it like there? You were surprised? I was really surprised. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was interesting to see because it's so disparate. You know, on the one hand, you have the Kazakh steppes, you know, vast, open, miles and miles and miles of grassland where the sheep, cows... Horses graze. Like in Mongolia, really. Yeah, right. And, you know, you almost can see, I don't know, you, you can see how it, was, how it was before. And then on the other hand, you have such amazing modern infrastructure. The skyline is, is just amazing. It's, it's so futuristic. So it, it was really kind of, um, I don't know, it, it was a bit mind-boggling. It was disparate in a way. I couldn't, I couldn't really put the two together, but... It is a very interesting space, a very interesting country, and a country we should all be watching because I, I, I think it is on its way to making its mark, if not, you know, in Central Asia, but the rest of the world as well. Kazakhstan seems to be really buying into the whole project, though. You know, some of the other numbers that came out were pretty boggling. $28 billion being invested on 51 projects. Hmm. How is it changing Kazakhstan's economy, Has? I think it's changing the economy in a huge way. If you walk around the city, if you just walk around the streets, you'd be surprised to see, you know, branded shops. You get, you know, your Max Mara, you have your, I didn't quite see Chanel, but I saw a, a lot of the, of the branded uh, goods there. And I think that is a reflection of, how the country has grown, and I think it has aspirations to grow even faster. I mean, this is a country pretty much based on oil and gas. I think that's driving the economy, but it also wants to be, I guess, the middleman, you know, in terms of trade, because a lot of countries, if you want to move your goods from 
east to west, Kazakhstan is possibly is where uh, it's possibly the middle middle ground, the meeting point. Yeah, well. I mean, another thing that came out actually was a conversation with the deputy foreign minister who said that the the volume of container traffic going through Kazakhstan has doubled every year for the past seven years mm-hmm. and, that, and that they're looking to take five billion a year in revenues. It's just mind boggling. Yeah. And, and it it's precisely what we talked about, Kazakhstan being... Uh, the buckle of the Belt and Road. So you can kind of visualize the role it plays. Mm. I mean, that's that's one side of it. The other side is that it wants to be, I guess, the the hub for financial markets, capital markets. I mean, this is a new ambition. I think it started maybe about five years ago when uh, uh, President Nur Sultan Nazarbayev by the way, he's been the only president the country has had. Mm. Um, you know, he he came up with this plan, this vision to make Kazakhstan play uh, a regional role. And, you know, that and trade, I think that's what's going to drive Kazakhstan going forward. Mm. So it's a pretty interesting, I guess, ambition, because with, you, you never ever think Kazakhstan was going to be a financial hub, right? I mean, when you think of Kazakhstan, what do you think of? Definitely not a financial hub. It wants to be a hub for Islamic finance, for instance. So it is a role it's really pursuing. And so that's, that brings me back to the question I had actually about the opening shots when you go into the uh, into the Kazakhstan part, because you've got mm. these drones that are flying over. I think that's a new international financial center, right, with that big circular building. Well, you're right. I, it's it's huge. Yeah. From what from what I understand. Well, I mean, to those who are listening to this podcast, I can absolutely recommend that you take a look at uh, at this uh, Belt and Road uh, episode because of the, some of the pictures are just amazing. The dry port, for example. Actually, we we don't even know whether we were allowed to uh, <laughs> really have drones. <laughs> <laughs> but we did anyways. Um, oh, just right. because so, I think it was the only way we can show how immense the place really is. I mean, you don't get a sense of Kazakhstan until you see it from the sky. I mean, that, that drone shot. I mean, if you don't have that drone shot, you can never imagine how huge and vast and you know, the potential of the country. Just, yes, really quite, 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 uh, quite extraordinary. Now, from Kazakhstan, we go to Southeast Asia. And the next time I see you, you're in Bangkok, standing in the middle of a, <laughs> of a road. Uh, the places that they get you to stand is quite um, extraordinary sometimes. But uh, tell me more about Thailand and, and, and how this all fits into the whole Belt and Road strategy. I think the Belt and Road is applicable not just to Thailand, but the rest of Southeast Asia. Yeah. I think, as you can imagine, most of the countries here in Southeast Asia, emerging economies in need, in desperate need of infrastructure. Mm. I think the countries here need in access, or I, I, I don't know, I, I think uh, the number, the exact number escapes me, but a few hundred billion dollars. So that's the magnitude of what uh, is needed in terms of infrastructure in Southeast Asia. And mm. Thailand is just one of them. I think as it pursues growth, it also needs to address its infrastructure needs, which are kind of bursting at the seams old. It needs to move more goods. It needs to move more people across the country. So, you know, this is where bodies like organizations like AIIB come into effect again. I mean, come into play. They, they provide some kind of funding so that infrastructure can be built. I think that the Philippine uh, finance secretary made a good point because he says that in the Philippines, for example, we're not building airports and hoping people will come to them. We're building airports because 
we are absolutely bursting at the seams. And I suppose he's making the distinction against, say, the airport that was built in Sri Lanka, which I believe hardly gets any uh, airplanes coming to it, and, and, and the port there as well, which has very few ships visiting every week. Uh, so, as you say, the Southeast Asian situation is we need infrastructure because our capacity is so tight. Well, you're right. Um, if you take at the Philippines, just take a look at the airport. I mean, it's it's really old. It's not meeting demands. And he made that point precisely. Each country really has to look at it at its own interest. And right now, it's trying to meet the needs of the people, a rising middle class. Uh, and that's the story of Southeast Asia, really, the rise of the middle class. And everybody now is more mobile. People want to move. So infrastructure like roads, railways, airports uh, really uh, need to be upgraded. It has been slow for the Philippines in particular. I think infrastructure projects have been slow to get off the ground. Mm. Uh, and they've run into all sorts of issues. And that is quite a reflection of what's happening in emerging markets. Indonesia is another country in need of infrastructure, but having a lot of trouble getting these infrastructure projects off the ground. Mm, yeah. Uh, well, I suppose we have to like say it's not completely smooth sailing. We've also just had the, uh, the new prime minister in Malaysia pushing back on some uh, Chinese infrastructure mm, projects. Mm. I, I, that has to do with debt as well. I, I think where Malaysia is concerned, uh, they're looking at a huge debt, which was not expected, which was passed on from the previous government. Uh, Mahathir Mohamed, the prime minister, has had to review all these projects with China because it's costing the country a lot of money. And by reviewing, I think he's kind of delaying most of these projects. He can't mm. take on board mm. uh, these projects right now because mm. they just don't have the capacity financially. So that will have to wait. But in terms of infrastructure needs, I mean, even Malaysia has to build these infrastructure if it wants to remain one of the tigers in Southeast Asia. Well, the other, I suppose the other point is that China looks on this as a decades long project. It's not something that's going to be happening and therein lies, and therein lies the risk. I yeah. think infrastructure projects are so long, and people are reluctant to because there are changes in governments. There, it's you know, when it comes to emerging markets, you, you see changes every other year sometimes in terms of you know who's in power and policies change. And therein lies the risk. Has thanks very much for speaking to us. That um, brings us to the end of our second podcast on the Belt and Road series that Bloomberg is running at the moment. Uh, next time, we're going to be talking about episode three, which takes us all the way to Africa. Thanks for listening, guys. Mm-hmm.